Hello everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle on this February 9th, the birthday of Pope Honorius II, to whom is ascribed the authorship of the grimoire of Pope Honorius, which I think I'm led to understand that it it is written from the perspective that the, the, the magician in question using the book should be a priest, which is kind of fun. And it's not to be confused, of course, with the sworn book of Honorius, which I believe is ascribed to Honorius of Thebes, a different Honorius. But anyway, happy birthday to Pope Honorius II, uh, about whom I know essentially nothing. So it's very possible I'm wishing a happy birthday to a monster. But you know, that's, that's a risk we run whenever we wish anyone a happy birthday. Who knows what evil lurks? in the hearts of men. Um, the shadow knows. Anyway, uh, I have a great show today, a fun little show, uh, talking to Asa West about green witchcraft, the the intersection of witchcraft and the environment. It's, it's a nice little chat. And also we have a, a little Plague Magic Minute. I'm still doing it a little bit, you know? Who knows? Who knows when I'll stop? I'm less chaotic as I get older, but you know, gotta throw in a little bit of surprises here and there. You don't have to. I, I mean, I don't have, I want, I guess, do I want to? Why am I doing this? What are my motivations? At this advanced age, do I remain even a mystery to myself? Perhaps. Anyway, uh, your Plague Magic Minute, of course, to be done in addition to any kind of actual, you know, health guidelines that you are following, you know, by all means, let, let us combine empiricism with occulty this and that if we want to, and not use one as a substitute for the other, centers on a kind of written charm, which is called a Deletio Morbi. And, and a Deletio Morbi, this, this is a term that seems to originate with Christopher Ferrione. And while there are various individual kinds of Deletio Morbi out there, uh, the one that gets talked about the most is the Abra Cadabra charm. If you've ever seen the written abracadabra charm, this is this is, you know, as opposed to people just saying abracadabra, because it's a magic-y sounding word. If you if you look at the abracadabra charm, the way it's usually written out, you have sort of the word abracadabra, and then you have the word repeated a number of times, each time with letters taken out of it so that the word gets smaller and shorter until it, it essentially disappears. It becomes, you know, a triangle of its own destruction, and then it is gone. And our earliest example of this dates back to a medical treatise written in verse uh, in Latin by Quintus Serenus Semonicus from the 3rd century CE, where he re recommends this charm as a treatment for fever. But this is a very common Mediterranean genre of medical charm. So in the in the Supplementum Magicum to the Greek magical papyri, there is another charm against fever where the disappearing word is Zagure Pagure, uh, which uh, Ferione speculates might be the name of a fever-causing demon associated with Seth Typhon. And I and I should mention that sort of the one big work on this kind of charm that really focuses on it is, is Ferione's vanishing axe on ancient Greek amulets. So that's really what I'm mostly drawing from here with a lot of this stuff. But there's another version of this kind of charm that appears in the Talmud, uh, where the name of a demon that causes blindness, the name of which seems to come from an Akkadian word for night blindness, Shabriri, is, is put through this similar process of just sort of, you know, disappearing, getting deleted a little bit until it, and presumably the sickness, is gone. Similar to this, there also is a, apparently a tradition of, of Roman amulets where the word for death is written backwards in Greek letters. The idea being, I guess, that at least according to, to again, the conjecture of Christopher Ferrione, that in writing it backwards, we are we are thwarting death in some way. And he points to a rite in the PGM where Kronos is summoned with a number of, of names for him and then expelled back out into, I guess, the underworld by saying those names backwards. So, you know, very fascinating link into the, just the basic you know, long-standing premise that if you know the name for a thing, you can you can do things 
with that to control that. You know, the idea of needing to know the names of demons and exorcisms that shows up in the Abrahamic traditions, uh, the old sort of notion that there's some kind of like green language that is the true language in a defiance of Ferdinand de Saussure, or even that whole like uh, Ur Ursula K. Le Guin uh, Legends Birdsea thing. So that's so fun. But anyway, so we've got these kinds of charms, this whole general premise, but how do we here in the year of our Lord, 2021, how do we apply this to our current situation with the plague? Well, Ferione points out that at least historically these charms tended to be limited to, to curing rather than preventing diseases and tended to be used for things like fever that people just sort of tended to slowly get over on their own. So it is conceivable that if we are going to adapt this to our purposes dealing with corona, that we're going to be looking at more of like a cure type scenario than a preventative type thingy. And even though Corona, of course, is quite new, we could conceivably apply an existing charm to it. There is a charm of this sort in the Supplementum Magicum, which is, is used, or was used supposedly as a treatment for, quote, all illness and all shivering and fever, that which occurs by day, quotidian, tertian, quartan. So, you know, we could just throw that at it, because it does seem to be um, as close to a panacea, something like this might might get. But there's also this idea of like, well, if, if it is based on the name of the, the thing, why don't we just make one with the name? And of course, you know, Corona, there's a name right there, or conceivably, you know, the various variants that exist. There, there are names that we can apply here, but we could also try to find the spirit name. And that calls up for some some divination. And I don't, like, this is already kind of uh, taking a bit longer than I, I might have intended, so I, I am going to maybe cut it off there and say, you know, who has a method for finding out the names of spirits? Why, it's, our, it's your friend of mine, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, who, uh, if you start looking in Book 3, Part 2, Chapter 24 of the three books of occult philosophy, he gives several ways of trying to find out the name of a spirit, most of which have to do, or perhaps all of which have to do, with astrology to one degree or another. So if you don't want to use Corona as the name of the coronavirus, you're at a loss of like how to find its its true name, turn to Heinrich Agrippa. Why not? Though I'm, I'm sure there are so many ways of doing divination on this that are worth trying out. You could just like cut up a bunch of letters and put them in a bag and try to do it that way, uh, which I don't know, sounds kind of like a fun way to, to spend some time on a on a snowy afternoon. So, on to the interview. So, Asa West is a witch and a tarot reader in Los Angeles, California, and she teaches classes on green witchcraft, cartomancy, and other topics, and her essays have appeared in Benefica, Gods and Radicals, which is in Pagan's Magazine and other places, and I reached out to her to talk to her about green witchcraft because she is the author of a short little zine, Five Principles of Green Witchcraft, which is now out from Gods and Radicals Press. And we talked about the relationship between the witch and nature and what witches are really supposed to do in the face of environmental degradation and the overwhelming threat of climate change. So, you know. A heavy subject, and I, I hope you enjoy it. To start on a kind of broad note, how dire is the crisis that faces witches, or I guess perhaps humanity at large right now, do you think? Sure. So... So this is, so, you know, when we're talking about climate change, I, this is the most dire thing we have ever faced, like, as a, as a species, as a global ecosystem of species, you know. And what's terrifying is how little people truly get that. My understanding of climate change, and by the way, I should say that, you know, everything I'm saying, I'm saying as, you know, a, a witch, um, a, you know, a nature lover, an amateur naturalist. Uh, I'm, not an, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an ecologist. Uh, so it's not like I have a scientific background of this. So it, it, my level of scientific knowledge is about on par with, you know, other people who are who are invested in this. But my understanding of climate change is that 
it won't it, people say oh we're going to save the earth or we're killing the planet that's not technically true right you know so the planet has been through a meteor hitting the earth right it's been through five mass extinctions so far it's been through it's been through global events that have kind of been on par with what we're going through now so the planet earth will survive climate change in one way or another but what people don't understand is that unless we do something really drastic right now we and all of the other species we love probably won't survive you know we're making this planet uninhabitable for us for other mammals for plants for other species it's really the most dire thing we've ever faced where do you see witches in this crisis like what should people who feel like they are tapped into some relationship with a more spiritual world maybe a more animist worldview like what what are they supposed to be doing right now? Because you point to at the beginning of 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 your of your book, you point to this this idea that it isn't just necessarily that that the earth is getting sort of disenchanted, disempowered, but also that witchcraft as it is currently practiced is also sort of getting disenchanted in a certain way. It's becoming commodified and right. shallow. Right. Yeah. Well. So. So yeah. So like, what is the task of the witch? You know. So when you when you have that that awakening and you realize like oh like i am a witch like this is what this is what i'm called to do what yeah what what is your job at that point like what what do you have to set out to do it, it's really helpful to think about where the this idea of the witch comes from so the idea of the witch comes from western culture and it's directly opposed to western industrialized culture so when you look at indigenous cultures and non-industrialized cultures that are more in tune with the rhythms of nature they don't have this idea of, you know, the nature practitioner or the healer or the herbalist also being an outcast, right? Being someone who is evil and, and who can't be trusted, but rather they have, you know, shamanic practitioners or medicine people, you know, traditional healers. So there's not this concept of the witch as a woman living by the hedge or these days a man with evil powers, you know. In Western society, however, the natural world has been set up as something that is to be feared and distrusted and overcome and dominated, right? And women and magic are all kind of wrapped up in that. It's uh, what Sylvia Federici writes about in Caliban and the Witch, right? So we have capitalist industrialized culture that's seeking to overcome, you know, this kind of this primal evil force that is the land and woman and and all of these so-called primitive forces, you know. So on one level, the job of the witch is to reclaim that, you know, to say, hey, speaking for the land and acting on behalf of the land and embracing the land and embracing other forms of consciousness, like animal consciousness and plant consciousness, this isn't evil, this isn't wrong. In fact, this is exactly what we need to be doing right now. Part of the job of the witch is to look at capitalism and industrialization, you know, these forces that are kind of literally paving over the planet and these ecosystems that we rely on and say, this is not progress, this is not healthy, this is not the epitome of, you know, of human civilization, like this is just wrong and we need to change course. So that's one job of the witch, you know, yeah. um, is to push back against industrialized capitalism. One quote that I am always bringing up is a quote by Peter Gray that says that the witch has been created by the land. To... So if Western culture is in direct competition with the natural world, the witch has arisen as this figure who can push back, you know, and kind of regain some ground in this battle that we didn't choose to fight, but nevertheless, we're fighting. Actually, your so your internet that... cut out for a second, just as you were saying the quote. Uh, the the the, the oh, land yeah. created the witch to to do to do what? Oh sure, yeah. The quote, the Peter Gray quote is, "The witch has been created by the land to act for it." Okay, and yeah. Yeah. I I'm curious because I feel like when we when we look at the historic place of the witch, right? The witch is, I think this is actually might be another Peter Gray quote. The idea is the witch is always at the end of a pointed finger. It's, it is definitely this sort of ostracized figure who in many ways, maybe, you know, they're a witch because of their place in society, not necessarily because of what they're doing, right? Like if you're, if you're, if your religious practice is unacceptable, that makes you a witch. It's not the religious practice itself necessarily, maybe but from a historical standpoint. But when we look at like, especially the way that um, capitalism has 
subsumed the idea of the witch into a thing that can be bought and sold very readily you know the crystals the whole um was it sephora a few years ago that was selling sage and crystals and such the witch box Um, the witch starter kit or whatever they're calling it I, i think there's an extent to which the witch as a as a figure at least in our society has been to borrow i think a phrasing from maybe uh aaron hodges uh defanged you know there there's yeah. a sense that like i don't think people are really i mean i'm i'm there there are holdouts certainly i remember um having someone come into a witchcraft shop that i was volunteering at and sort of you know tell us not to hex the president with this sort of note of terror that that we were going to to, to destroy him but like Mm-hmm. For the most part, it seems like most people aren't really afraid of witches. They're not sort of the enemy, as much as the witch might see themselves as the enemy of capitalism, capitalism doesn't see the witch as mm-hmm. its enemy. Is there is there a way that witches should become scary again, dangerous again? Yeah, well, so the short answer is yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, so that's actually kind of the, the second job of the witch right now is to pull back from this brink we found ourselves on where the whole idea of the witch is in danger of really just being engulfed by capitalism. A few years back, a co-worker of mine said something that really stuck with me and was paraphrased from someone else who said it to him, which was that culture eats change, right? So I think the original quote is like, culture eats change for breakfast. So the idea is whenever you bring a change into culture, that culture will engulf that change. It's almost like an amoeba, you could think of it. Mm. Uh, Engulf it and really dilute it and pick it apart until it's indistinguishable from the culture to which it was introduced. And so we've seen this with witchcraft, you know. It originally, I mean, I'm not going to go into the entire history of the rebirth of witchcraft here. This is going to be a kind of a gross oversimplification. But, you know, it arose as an effort to re-enchant the world, right? To re-enchant the human mind, to re-enchant the wild, to re-enchant nature, to re-establish this connection that we've lost with all of the other consciousnesses with which we share this world. But capitalism doesn't have any room for that. You know, it doesn't have any, it doesn't have any patience for that. It doesn't have any understanding of that concept. You know, well, how can everything be sacred when we need to destroy and process everything in order to create profit? You know, those two ideas don't mesh together. And so we've seen the process of capitalism just diluting it and picking it apart and deconstructing it until there's kind of, um, you know, in a lot of spheres, there's kind of nothing authentic left, right? So that's how you see things like the Sephora witch box, where it comes with a crystal and a sage bundle, which is offensive for a whole host of reasons. But no idea that witchcraft is a spiritual discipline or a calling for connection with the wider world. It becomes just like a fad or a hobby. And so part of our task right now is to pull back from that and push back against that and to say, no, like there's something much deeper and more meaningful and more important here than just buying up a bunch of crystals, right? This is this is something that we have been tasked with in order to change the world. And that's how we need to become scary again. You know, we need to be we need to scare the people who want to keep the world the way it is right now with climate change, you know, endangering us with natural habitats being being threatened, being destroyed with the entire world being disenchanted. Like that's the steps quote they want to keep. And so the way we need to become scary is by presenting a whole new vision of a world that doesn't, doesn't involve any of that. And that vision, do you see, cause like when I, when I frequently see people sort of articulate, um, uh, Oh, I think you're uh, breaking up. Oh goodness. I'm sorry. Hi, it's me. Uh, just heads up. We had a little bit of technical difficulties there for a second and the call dropped out for, it felt like forever. It was probably like a minute and a half. So there was a little discontinuity there. Uh, and I didn't I didn't want to leave you to wonder what had happened. So here's the interview picking up again after we were able to uh, reestablish a connection. So, gosh, where were we? Okay, uh, so, so if... So the task of the witch... One of the tasks of the witch is to become sort of scary again and, and um, incompatible with the needs and, and agenda of capitalism through a kind of re-enchantment of the world... But when the idea of like re-enchanting the world sort of pops up, I feel like a very easy sort of understanding of that would be something on the lines of changing our own orientation to the world, you know, and an internal process of 
trying to relate to the world in a different way, which makes sense for, for someone who's sort of committed to, to, to witchcraft. But if we, if we sort of see that as a tool of changing the world, is the idea sort of proselytizing that kind of worldview? Or is there a way that like re-enchanting the world can also take the form of physically changing the world outside of us, doing things to the world to make it perhaps more enchanted to people who are not necessarily conducive to that worldview. That's a great way of thinking about it. What that reminds me of is, for me, growing up in a heavily uh, evangelical Christian part of the country. So I grew up in Orange County, California, which has a huge, huge evangelical population. And that was kind of what I was immersed in uh, for the first 18 years of my life. And I remember they always proselytized through fear. I mean, that was their main tool was fear, you know? So they would approach you with like little pamphlets. I remember one pamphlet had, you know, like all of your favorite rock stars on it and they're all going to hell. Or, you know, they'd say like, you know, oh, well, what are you going to do if you die tomorrow? And you know, they'd pose you these kind of impossible questions. Mm, like to, chick tracks. Just to try to kind of jumpstart this fear. Uh, sorry? Oh, sorry. I was gonna say like chick tracts, uh, those little those little yeah. comic books, the terrifying, you know. You you tried playing D and D, and now you're in hell. Um, right, exactly. That's it. That sort of thing, right? So, yeah, their their tactic is always to kind of like startle you into this fear reaction, you know, hoping to kind of use that as an in, you know, to convert you. And fear just doesn't work as a proselytizing tactic. I just it never worked on me. I, I, I never knew anyone else that it worked on. Or if like if people did get drawn into it, usually it would kind of wear off after a while and they would leave again, you know. And so I I have uneasy feelings about which is proselytizing at all, just because that's my experience of the concept of, you know, spreading your religion to other people. But if we, I mean, if we did want to, you know, kind of spread the word about witchcraft and like change the world outside of ourselves, I feel like we would want to do it by showing people the beauty of what's possible, showing people what we're all about by creating beautiful habitats, by creating more beautiful ways of being and ways of relating to each other. I mean, one very like easy, easy in theory, maybe not always in practice, but easy to conceptualize example of this is like a community garden, right? So if you want to get people reconnected with nature, you know, telling them like the world is ending because of climate change is not, that's not really going to do it. You know, it's, it's more likely to just to induce despair in them and kind of a lack of hope. But if you tell people like, Hey, we're starting a community garden, there's going to be vegetables, there's going to be flowers, there's going to be native plants. There's going to be, you know, plants for pollinators and hummingbirds. That's going to create something that people are going to, you know, hopefully get really excited about. And even if they're skeptical at first, if they think like, well, I, I don't really care about plants, you know, or I don't know, that sounds like a lot of work, you know, hopefully maybe when they see it in person, they'll think, oh, actually, you know what, this is pretty cool. And this is, this is a lot, uh, this is a lot more fulfilling than I thought it would be, you know? So it's funny, you, you, you actually have this interesting situation where the job of the witch is to be scary to people in power by creating beautiful things, right? Mm. By showing everyone else like what beauty is possible in the world. And I guess you could say that's the same thing that a lot of radicals are up to right now too. You know, when we think of radicals, leftist radicals, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, and the black block, Antifa, right? They're breaking windows, supposedly. But all the radicals that I know personally are all working on gardens and art and, you know, re-beautifying and re-enchanting the world rather than going around breaking windows. So our main job is to create beauty and to some people that, you know, that is just going to be scary. Okay, but you don't you don't see the witches cuz like, you know, I feel like the the classic conception of the witch no matter how much it is sort of, you know, written by the other side, right? Like it's, you know, witches are, are often characterized historically by people who don't like witches, so of course, you know, bias source. But I feel like the classic idea of the witch is someone who is going to, you know, poison your cow eat the children, right. uh, uh, sour the milk. But you don't, you don't see the witch's role now 
as as in any way sort of like confrontational like we're not like you the green witch as you conceive of 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 them is not i guess uh chaining themselves to oil pipelines or or i don't know i'm trying to think of other things you can do that are sort of like that uh cementing the door shut on the exxon mobile uh head office in wherever it is i assume new york or texas but i actually don't know oh oh uh california Um, oh it is huh okay yep Well, so I will say this. I I, I think the main job of the Green Witch is to be in communion with the land and to re-enchant people's relationship with the land. But I think we should never, ever, ever shy away from confrontation when it's necessary. I mean, if there's a pipeline going in and people are chaining themselves to it to stop it, then absolutely, yes, we need to be there, right? Because if someone is about to throw a punch at someone you love you try to stop it. You know, you pull that person away. You you get involved however you need to get involved to protect the person you love. And it's exactly the same with the land and with all the people on the land, human and non-human, you know. So if you think about the water protectors at Standing Rock, I hesitate to be because, you know, apparently like some of the uh, some of the non-native people there you know, were actually kind of a net negative because they didn't quite know what the protocol was. But that was absolutely an effort that needed to be supported by everyone, you know, everyone who cared about the land and water rights and indigenous populations and life on earth. One of the tenets of traditional witchcraft, which is what I I am practicing these days, is that in order to heal, you have to be able to hex, right? If you can't hex, then you can't heal. And there are a few different interpretations of that. You know, one is just a knowledge of plants, you know, so if you know how to work with poisonous plants, then you can also use them for healing. But another way to think about it is using all of the tools at your disposal in order to fight for what's important. You know, so one day it may be that community garden, you know, planting those seeds, tending those plants, educating your neighbors on the kinds of plants that are growing and why they're growing there and why they're important. The next day, you know, it may be chaining yourself to the pipeline. It may be trying to shut down ExxonMobil. It may be, it may be punching a Nazi, you know, but yeah, we should absolutely never shy away from confrontation when it's needed. This, this idea of the, the Green Witch as someone whose practice involves communing with nature, especially as our wild spaces kind of diminish and, and, and disappear off the face of the earth as part of the ongoing sort of ecological collapse that we are facing. How is someone mm-hmm. who is invested in this idea of community with nature to sort of inhabit that kind of space with the idea of that space kind of disappearing as we as we speak? So yeah, this is something that I've struggled with a lot and I've seen a lot of other people struggling with it too. I read a, a really well-written and really heartbreaking article. I, I want to say it was the New York Times Magazine, but I, I can't quite remember... And it was about it was about the idea of climate action as hospice care. And even just saying that out loud is so like it, it feels so demoralizing. But it it is also a, like a hard possibility that we need to face, right? You know, the, the possibility that there may not be much we can do at this point to reverse climate change. And so our task at this point may be, and I say may, not definitely, but just it may be to make this transition into whatever's coming next, you know, as as easy as possible. And there's no easy way to inhabit that space, right? There's no easy way to look around at all these species that you're trying to save and know that you may not be able to save them, but having to just press ahead anyway. When I moved into the building that I'm living in right now, it's a, it's a condominium building, I got permission from the homeowners association, so the board that kind of makes decisions for the building, to plant California native plants around the back alleys, you know. So I planted some sages, I planted some California fuchsia, I planted a California sagebrush, which is a, a sacred plant to some local tribes, uh, indigenous tribes. And for a couple of years, the plants really flourished. They just happened to be like right for this particular little, little microclimate that the building is in. They grew really big, they were fragrant. I mean, the sages were just, they smelled so amazing. And then last summer, I came home one day and I found that they had just been raised to the ground. I mean, there was just bare dirt where all of these plants had been. And of course, I was devastated. You know, like I emailed the board and I asked, why? Why did you do this? And they said, oh, they got too big, you know. Oh, my gosh. 
<laughs> so it was a very, it was a violent act, you know. It's awful. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was awful. It was an awful thing for them to do. But it's not, it's not a new story. I mean, this is happening all over the, all over the world, you know. I mean, plants and ecosystems are being just demolished, often like quite suddenly. I mean, we saw what happened in the Amazon last year where it was, why well, I mean, it's painfully to even talk about, but, uh, you know, indigenous people in the Amazon found their homes just destroyed, you know, in really kind of a pointless fashion, you know. So anyway, so after I found out that this had happened to all the plants that I had planted, and I had, I had developed relationships with these plants. I mean, to me, these plants were people. I, I mean, they had personalities. I, you know, I would greet them. It was like losing friends when I saw that they were all gone. I really wrestled with the sense of hopelessness, you know, well, why did I do that? I mean, there was no point. I like, I wasted all that time. I wasted all that energy. I wait. The, the most painful idea for me was that I had wasted all that love that like, well, why had I loved these plants when they just got destroyed? Like that was a very hard emotion for me to wrestle with. But what I really had to remind myself was that maybe there were reasons for this having happened that I wasn't really privy to at the time. Maybe by planting these plants there, even if they were short-lived, maybe they helped some local species, you know, maybe like Anna's hummingbirds or the local butterflies or the pol other pollinators. Maybe they helped them in a way that like I, I didn't necessarily see. You know, maybe they did something for the environment that will never be apparent to me, but was actually really important. So I kind of just had to like kind of settle into that state of not knowing what good I had done, but having to tell myself that, you know what, it was definitely worth doing anyway. Mm. And Rebecca Solnit talks about this a lot in Hope in the Dark, right? It's this, this idea that the good you do in the world may not necessarily show up while you're doing it. It may not even necessarily show up in your lifetime, but that doesn't mean you didn't do good. You know, it doesn't mean that you didn't do something important. So that's how we can think of climate change. We have to keep pressing on. We have to keep acting as if we have the power to reverse this, even if maybe we don't, because we never know how much good we're actually doing by trying. That makes perfect sense, especially given that, that climate change, if we were to, to, to stall climate change, it would be mm -hmm. the absence of change that we would observe as opposed to as opposed to some noticeable change, right? It would be the, the idea that we are, that keeping things as they are right now exactly is a victory in a situation where things are declining, even though that would right. not be obvious. So, but for like a, for like a practitioner who is maybe uh -huh. in an environment that, that either, you know, like they're in a, an urban space where there's just not a lot of green about, or they are in a place that feels kind of blighted in i mean america has this very particular kind of blight where you know it's it's just 20 miles of arby's dq best buy repeat so like someone who's sort of in that kind of situation if they want to try to commune with nature is the question how do i get to some sort of idyllic more sacred space in like a national park or is the idea like how do i how do i find or generate nature where i am like does it count if the if the plants you're communing with are potted plants that you bought and put in your home yeah absolutely you know i mean the short answer is yes like yes the potted plants count yes the little snippets of green that you can find in your urban environment count and yes the natural parks count too you know again like i, I grew up in orange county very evangelical very suburban and it was exactly the kind of environment that you just described, right? Like, yeah, Arby's Best Buy, <laughs> repeat for 20 miles. And I spent most of my most of my childhood and most of my teenage years thinking that there was just no nature anywhere, you know, that I was just doomed to live in, like, kind of a concrete wasteland until I was able to escape and go off to college. But I remember when, in high school... I started taking just these long walks around my town, you know, so I would just set off walking. I would walk for miles after school or on the weekends. And one day in high school, I suddenly found this kind of wild, untamed area that I had never known about. It was only about maybe like a, maybe two miles from my house, but I had never found it before because I had never looked for it. It was kind of just this little patch of undeveloped area behind some oil derricks, you know, those kind of the big machines that pump oil. Oh, yeah. Um, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Those those things. The the praying mantis things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> those things. And I found that like once I walked past the oil derricks, I was in this little oasis. And then there were trees and there were plants. I found I I, I honestly actually think it was a little deer path, even though I never once saw deer growing up because it was just this tiny little path in this sort of brambly area that led to a little kind of hidden grove, like completely hidden from the outside world. You would never see it just by looking at it. And I started just spending time in this little, in this little wild area. And I learned so much about it. I learned the, the noises that the trees made. One day I met some coyotes, which was a little bit harrowing, but I am so glad that it happened. And all of this happened in that, in that suburban environment, you know? So the, the nature is there if you look for it. You just have to be diligent. You just have to be, you have to be aware of what's around you. You know, you have to have your attention turned up pretty high in order to find it. Hmm. With that said, though, urban nature is seldom very healthy. I mean, there's always, there's going to be toxins in the soil. There's going to be garbage littered around. Even beautiful spaces like public parks or community gardens, you know, they're, they're going to be curated a lot. So they will have that human touch to them, which doesn't make them fully wild. And so it is really important to also try to get out to those more, you know, those, I, I guess that. I have mixed feelings about the word pristine, but, you know, to those more pristine areas like national parks where you can really see nature without that human touch, you know, because it, it can get demoralizing to, to constantly be pulling candy wrappers out of the soil of your sacred place, you know. Hmm. So do you, do yeah. you see a place for, because this is sort of interesting, right? This idea that if it's, if it's curated by a person, it kind of loses this this touch of wildness. But at the same time, if we wish to maybe expand the reach of the wild, we would have to actively do something as humans potentially to do that, unless it's sort of a kind of passivity. So is there is there a place for sort of extending the domain of the wild around us? I mean, you, 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 you describe planting native plants, right? Like that seems like a version of that. But are there, are, there, are there other ways that we, if we wish to sort of do the work of the Green Witch, that we mm-hmm. should be approaching a kind of reclamation on behalf of nature? It's okay if you also don't have any specific ideas in mind. It's because, like, I'm, I, I only just, it only just occurred to me now to even ask something like this. Cause, and all I'm picturing is, you know, going down and, you know, prying up parts of the sidewalk so that things can come out right. of it. right. I mean, here I think is where our work needs to get more overtly political, you know, like what what we think of when we think of the word political, because, you know, guerrilla gardening, where you go and you, you know, you start to tend for public areas that have been neglected, or you replace lawns with native plants or with food forests, that's all really important work, and it can be so easily undone, you know, as we saw with the plants that I planted around my building. I mean, it just took one order to the gardeners and it was all it was all gone so this is so this is where we need to get involved in things like you know like local politics electoral politics city councils i know a lot of which is like i hate the thought of electoral politics like oh man like i don't want to you know like i i don't want to be like campaigning like this is not the life i want to live i i don't even know if this is any of this is effective or not but as we can see from things like ecology and ecosystems, everything is connected, right? So the people on your city council are connected to what's going on in the soil of your city, even if that connection doesn't seem apparent. It's like the Mary Oliver quote at the beginning of the zine, you know, do you think there's anything not attached by its unbreakable cord to everything else, right? So if we want to make sure that the, that the, the overtly green work that we're doing, you know, rewilding our, our, our neighborhoods and our cities, making space for, for the wild again. If we want to make sure that this work is actually going to have a long-lasting impact, then we need to be equally involved in the human world, too, even if that's, you know, not where we would ideally love to be. It's like this idea of the, the witch as traditionally, you know, a hedge writer, right? Someone who has one foot in the spirit world and one foot in the human world. If we just go off completely into nature because it's what we want to do, we're not really doing our jobs as witches anymore. Like we need to stay anchored in the human world as well. And sometimes that involves, you know, campaigning for a, for a city council 
representative. Mm. We should be sort of the Loraxes of the world a little bit. Loraxes, indeed. <laughs> yes. So, in in the book, you you talk a lot about the idea of nature as an egregore, and mm-hmm. and this is really interesting. And I was wondering if you could sort of explain a little bit the idea that you know. First of all, I mean, I think a lot of people might be unfamiliar with the idea of an egregore, just sort of at all. Uh, but like, what is an egregore, and then if, and how does thinking of nature as an egregore change the way that we relate to it? Sure. Yeah. Well, so yeah. So just a, first, a, like a quick explanation of what the egregore is in kind of traditional occult lore. The egregore is an independent thought form that's created by a focused group will. So, for instance, if a coven of witches get together and they all focus their energy on on one particular spell, and if their wills are completely aligned and they're really in sync with each other, then, according to occult lore, they will create the egregore, which is this separate entity born from all of their wills combined to then go off and do the magical work that they need to get done. So that was my understanding of the egregore for, for many years. Then I took a class in traditional witchcraft with Griffin Kedd here in Los Angeles. He's in, at the Green Man store in North Hollywood. And he taught us that the egregore can also be the uh, kind of the ancestral consciousness of, of your ancestors, of the people who came before you, right? So when you, when you pray to your ancestors, especially the ancestors of the kind of the deeper past before your you know, before your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your named ancestors, that kind of that cultural mass that you are that you are in communion with, that is also an egregore, right? Because it's many, many wills that have kind of been combined into one, one cohesive entity. So that was my understanding of the egregore when I first set about writing down the principles that would turn into the zine. And uh, the more I... The more I went out into all of these tiny little ecosystems that are that you find everywhere in cities and in the uh, you know in the liminal spaces around cities, the more I came to realize that an ecosystem is itself is an egregore, right? Because all of these different life forms are all are all working together in a way, even when like maybe like one species is in competition with another species they all come together to form this mass that is greater than themselves. When we think of the redwoods in Northern California, or when you go to visit the redwoods, it is, it is a very cohesive environment. Like everything is in this, uh, this really perfect balance. When you think of like a coral reef, you know, like the Great Barrier Reef, I mean, everything is in balance there. So it's all of these wills that have come together to, to form something bigger. And so one of the, one of the most rewarding practices of the green witch is to is to strive to kind of like slot yourself into that into that egregore you know to like become in tune enough with the ecosystem in which you're working that you feel aligned and in balance with all of the other life forms there i will say i think i felt it (laughs) it's one of those things it's you know it's so easy to doubt yourself after you feel like you've been there but I think I felt it, and it's been like a such a powerful, such a tender and loving experience. And when you talk about, you know, working with spirits, working with gods, do these sort of also get subsumed into kind of the egregore of nature, especially if they're sort of nature spirits, or is that like a separate ecosystem for you? That's interesting. I mean, I feel like... I feel like gods and spirits, they, they work on different levels just as ecosystems work on different levels, right? So if you think of an aspen grove, if you look at one aspen tree, you know, it's so easy to think like, oh, there's a tree, and it is one tree, and it happens to be surrounded by other trees. But if you look beneath the soil in an aspen grove, you see, oh, like all these trees are actually connected at the roots. Oh, that's interesting. So the, all of these separate trees are actually connected to each other, huh? And then when you learn a little bit more about an aspen grove, you learn, oh my goodness, it's not just that they're connected, it's that they're all the same organism, (laughs) you know? Like what looks like all these separate trees are actually one gigantic organism that is connected at this, you know, at this root level. Fungal networks work the same way, right? Like you can have like one fungus that is miles and miles long even though the mushrooms that it sends up through the soil look like they're separate. And so when we think about gods and spirits, you know, whether we consider 
consider them literally real or metaphors or archetypes or thought forms or however you conceive of you know of these these beings in the other world what they are and the egregore that they're part of can be very fluid and elastic and it can change based on the scale that you're looking at them on you know so if you're looking at like a a very tiny little microcosm you know maybe like a spirit can just be the spirit of one tree right so like this is the spirit that inhabits this one tree maybe if you pull out you can think well there's a spirit that you know kind of looks over this entire forest is it the same spirit is it a separate spirit i don't know you know maybe if you pan back a little bit more and you think oh well maybe the whole earth is alive and protected by a spirit or spirits or gods or a god I found that in theology and in the way that we directly experience the divine, it can be just very, very fluid and very elastic and ever-changing, and, and that's okay. Hmm. At one point in the book, you, you describe this sort of experience, and if I may quote for a moment, once the primal self is awakened, the body of the earth will speak directly to the body of the witch. It sparks okay. in his brainstem and stirs memories of when he was soil and bacteria and plant life and animal flesh before he coalesced into his own separate human body. What does it mean to occupy this kind of understanding where you yourself become kind of fluid in your relationship to nature? Is this is this is the value of this mostly a kind of of gnosis, like a kind of, you know, important understanding or is there also something operative about reawakening this this connectedness yeah well i i kind of see it as operating on kind of a twofold level the first level so i studied buddhism for a few years many years ago and that still has like really really greatly impacted my thinking and my theology and of course in a buddhist mindset there is no self right and the body is temporary you know so it's not like we have a this kind of like everlasting cohesive soul that's going to just continue on and on into eternity in buddhist thought you know ourselves will dissolve along with the body because they were never really there to begin with and that's it, it sounds scary the first time you hear it but it's actually kind of a comforting thought you know this idea that like i will become the soil i will become the trees because that's what i started out as and this kind of confluence of different thoughts and different experiences that have come together to form what i think of it me is not permanent and it's going to dissolve again and i'll become something else you know i mean it's it once you really sit with that it's um it's it's comforting in a weird way um and it's inspiring you've probably heard the you know the buddhist parable of the wave in the sea right so the wave crashes to shore and feels itself getting pulled back into the sea and thinks oh no like what's going to happen when i get pulled back into the sea i've only ever known being a wave i'm so, so i'm so frightened what's going to happen and what happens is it joins the rest of the water and it joins the rest of that what you know what we could think of as universal consciousness so a lot of green witchcraft and again this is you know some buddhist influence that has kind of made itself into my work a lot of green witchcraft is training yourself to be able to let go of this idea of this one singular self that is you and that has to have all of its wants met and has to have all of its desires met and letting yourself you know just kind of like flow back into into this kind of huge mass of life around you so that's kind of the first level of it you know and what and that's that that itself is pushing back against capitalism too right because capitalism is all about the individual and the ego and you know meeting all of your desires and your goals and getting everything you want whereas being a part of nature is about this more give and take you know of letting yourself kind of be part of this flow of the natural world and then the second level is once you get your ego out of the way that opens yourself up to to listening to your subconscious and listening to what you know what i call this primal self this uh you know you could think of it as i think i you know i referred to the reclaiming word that the younger self right the self that's more connected to the sensory world around you and to all of these other non-human voices that are speaking to you so once you get that conscious mind out of the way you find that this this deeper self kind of like bubbles up and has messages for you hmm 
actually, so you, you, I wanted to ask you about about re- the reclaiming tradition because you are. I'm led to understand that in addition to to working in traditional witchcraft, you have this you have this Buddhist influence. You are also a priestess in the reclaiming tradition. But the reclaiming tradition is itself. I hesitate to say it's somewhat new because I feel like that dates me to say that something from I, my understanding is it sort of emerged around 1980. So like to say that 80 is new is like, you know, how old am I? But like, <laughs> if you could for a moment for folks who are who are unfamiliar, what is what is the basic sort of thrust of the reclaiming tradition? What are you what are you seeking to reclaim? Sure, sure, yeah. So I should preface this by saying that I haven't really been active in the past year or two with my local reclaiming communities. So I, I don't know if I can say that I'm currently a priestess. But the kind of the the main idea behind the reclaiming tradition is it's a union between the feminist, uh, or I should say eco-feminist witchcraft with social justice, right? So it's a socially engaged witch, witchcraft that seeks to make this world better, through activism, so that's kind of you know how it was uh, how it was originally conceived by uh, by Starhawk and by the other founders of Reclaiming. What initially drew me to Reclaiming was this activist bent to it, because I was really looking for a strain of witchcraft that was really engaged in the world, rather than what unfortunately I saw a little bit too often, rather than an escape from it. You know, so kind of retreating into into kind of a more reclusive lifestyle that wasn't really trying to make change in the world. So I don't know if that answers your question. I mean, it does, right? Because it, it, it really points to this idea that, that reclaiming, the reclaiming tradition, and, and please correct me if this feels like a mischaracterization, but like it is, it is a witchcraft that is defined in particular by being, by this sort of this, this, this kind of striding that you've been talking about, this idea of being someone who is connected to nature, but not, disappearing into it so that you can actually have mm-hmm. you can do work on behalf of nature in the human world but so far with green witchcraft we've sort of talked about this idea of, of sort of reorienting your understanding of who you are and what you are in terms of how you belong within nature and what constitutes a self in this world and also this idea of sort of trying to actively go into the human world and do sort of human things on behalf of nature but is there how much of a ritual component is there to to the green witch is there is there a lot of of big sort of ceremonial stuff going on is there a lot of sort of maybe small little moments is is walking in nature a kind of ritual for the green witch yeah so for me and by the way so i mean it, this is probably obvious but i i didn't come up with the phrase green witch or green witchcraft like you know the, these phrases have been around for you know for decades and for me, one of, the, one of the loveliest things about green witchcraft is that it's not a tradition in itself. Rather, it's, it's a facet of witchcraft. You know, so if you think of witchcraft as you know, a gem or a jewel, and it has all of these different facets and all of these different faces, green witchcraft is just one of those. You know, so you can, be, you can be a ceremonial magician and a green witch. You can be a traditional witch and a green witch. You can be a Wiccan high priestess and a green witch. Or not, you know, if you're purely into the ceremonial aspect of witchcraft, you know, that's fine too. But you can step in and out of green witchcraft to the degree that, you know, that really feels right to you. And so I feel like every green witch's idea of a ritual is going to be very different. Some... Some green witches really will get a lot of fulfillment and a lot of important work out of, you know, more elaborate ceremonial rituals, right? With a lot of, of like a long liturgy and many invocations and lots of props, you know. I've been in rituals like that and they they can be truly amazing. I mean, just the amount of beauty that you can create and the amount of power you can raise. To other green witches, yeah, a ritual might be just as simple as taking a walk, you know, or just watering that potted plant that's in your apartment. Right now, I have two kids, you know, I have an eight-year-old and I have a three-year-old. Um, and as, as you can imagine, <laughs> they take up a lot of time, especially since I'm homeschooling one of them because of COVID. And so for me, I have not been doing really, really any big rituals lately, just because not only do I really not have the time, but I feel like I, I often don't have the mental bandwidth, you know? So at the yeah. end of the day, I like, I, you know, I kind of like sit down, I finally am able to put my feet up and I think, oh, it, the full moon is tonight. I could either 
bring all of my supplies up to the roof of the building and cast the compass and call the quarters and do all these invocations. Or I could just take my drum up and just drum under the full moon for, you know, for a little bit. And these days, more often than not, like, it's just me and the drum, you know, because that's kind of just what I have the, uh, what I have the energy for, like, right now at this point in my life. I'm sure that when my, you know, when my kids get older and they get a little bit more self-sufficient, I'll be able to go back to, to, to longer and more involved rituals. And I'm really looking forward to that. But it's not necessary for green witchcraft. You know, the only thing that's necessary for green witchcraft is this connection with the natural world. Mm. Actually, this 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 reminds me this this talking of the drum, this this idea that you talk about in the book of of a kind of sacred silence that mm. capitalism on the whole would seek to deprive us of. Mm-hmm. Could you talk for a moment about the nature of this silence and its huh. value? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this idea of sacred silence, you find this in so many spiritual traditions, right? Again, you find it in Buddhism with silent meditation. I want to say Mother Teresa talked about this idea of sacred silence in the fairy tradition of witchcraft. Karina Blackheart wrote wrote a whole book on silence and witchcraft. What what happens when you when you fall silent? When when you let yourself fall into a healthy a healthy receptive silence? is that you'll hear voices that you didn't hear before. You know, I mentioned this hidden grove uh, that I found when I was a teenager, kind of in the depths of uh, evangelical Orange County behind the oil derricks. I remember when I sat down in that grove and I just listened, you know, I stopped talking and I stopped, you know, this kind of like chattering mind thinking and I just listened. I suddenly heard all these little squeaks, you know, this kind of sounds, uh, the sound of like, you know, like ee, 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 like that. And it was such a strange sound. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is that? And I realized it was the limbs of the trees, like rubbing together, you know, making these squeaking noises. And it, to me, it felt like the trees were, were talking to me, you know, not, not, not saying anything, you know, really like groundbreaking or anything, but just, I was hearing the voices of the trees as they, as they lived their lives, you know, as they existed in the way that they knew how to exist. And I would have never heard that if I had gone in, you know, with, uh, well, by, this is long ago. So, you know, w- with a Walkman, you know, uh, or in these days with my AirPods in, you know, I would have never heard them if I had been distracted by thoughts of like, oh, that big assignment for work that I've got to do, or, oh, that guy who cut me off in traffic or this or that, or, you know, other things going on in my life. It was only by you know, kind of like calming my mind and falling silent that I was able to hear that voice. And so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about sacred silence, this idea of putting yourself in a receptive state and making sure that you're paying attention to what's going on around you so that you give the egregore and the spirits around you a a chance to talk to you and a chance for yourself to hear what they're saying. Mm. And again, like, you know, like us witches, I've noticed you know, kind of in the modern witchcraft movement, like we're always listening for specific messages, you know, almost as if like the whole world is our tarot deck, right? So like, oh my, like, what should I do to get this job? What should I do to, you know, for self-improvement? What should I do to become a better version of myself? But oftentimes, like the messages that are most useful to us are not, they're the messages that don't have anything to do with us. You know, they're just the messages of, just what what the world is doing around us at this moment. Mm. So less a less a, a story and more of an awareness. Yeah, exactly. Or you could say less of a less of a narrative and more and more of a melody. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> Actually, since you bring up you bring up divination, and also we are coming up in an hour, so I, I should let you go. But I wanted to talk about something before we wrap everything up, which is that I I saw that on your on your professional site where you where you offer divination services, uh, primarily tarot, would seem you also do dream interpretation. I do a little bit, yes. How do you typically go about go about that? Is that is there sort of a, a particular tradition that you are you're engaging with when you do dream interpretation? Is it sort of intuitive a little bit? Is it is it kind of piecing together narrative themes? What? How do you how do you typically approach that? It's very narrative. My technique, and it's very similar to the way I read cards. When I read tarot cards, I don't do what I call a fixed spread, right? Where like every card is in a position that means something different. Rather, I just lay the cards out and I just see what story they're telling me. You know, 
And my approach to dream interpretation, and again, like I didn't come up with this, this, I learned this from someone else, is very similar, right? Where you take the elements of the dream, so the characters, the setting, the timing, you know, the plot, like what, who is doing what in the dream, and you kind of turn it into a coherent story. And in doing so, you can often pinpoint little messages uh, in the dream or kind of like elements in the dream that maybe you didn't notice when it was just kind of like a jumble of images in your memory, you know? So yeah, it's, it's very, it's, it's this idea of taking the dream and just seeing like what story your brain was telling you and then asking yourself, well, why? Like, why was my brain telling me this story? Um, it's very similar. I guess you could compare it to listening to a story um, told to you by a small child, right? So if you've ever had like a preschooler tell you a story, I mean, they could be they could be pretty wacky, you know, they could be wild. But if you listen closely to what the preschooler is telling you, there will often be very interesting elements under the surface that are kind of there, like being like kind of waiting to be found. Mm. So you don't. So it sounds like from your description that you you see dreams primarily as sort of a, a way of accessing the sort of primal or subconscious elements of the self rather than say you know the the means by which the universe is trying to sort of reach out to you in some way or or like a sort of conduit for spirit or something like that. I mean, honestly, like from a practical standpoint, I, I don't see much difference. You know, mm. like what's the difference between god and and the subconscious well you know intellectually you could lay out a bunch of differences but in the way that people have spiritual experiences often it comes down to a very fuzzy barrier between the two and a very permeable barrier Mm. um so very often you know if you look at a dream and you and you manage to interpret it in a way that really resonates and really feels right you know, you can look at it one way and you can say like, okay, well, this is, you know, this is an old childhood trauma that was trying to tell me something in the dream. And then you can look at it another way and think, oh, and this is my, this is my spirit guide giving me a message. Mm. And there's no difference between the two. Like they end up kind of, you know, functionally being the same thing. Hmm. Yeah. And again, like that's from a practical, functional standpoint. Theologically, I mean, we could debate this, you know, until the end of time. But from an operative standpoint, from a standpoint of, you know, just, okay, this this dream has something to tell me and I want to find out what it is. In a way, it doesn't, it, it stops mattering, you know, who sent you this message as long as the message is received. Hmm. That's interesting. I feel like, so... When, when when talking about sort of gods and spirits has sort of uh, come up in our conversation thus far, I feel like you've been you've been very open to the idea that you know people have different interpretations. They come at it from different directions. They they might they might have different ideas of like what exactly a god is or God is. You know, is it the subconscious that sort of thing? Where do you where do you tend to stand on on that? Like for your own just personal sort of sense of of theology, where do you where do you feel these things line up? Yeah. For, for me, they for me they feel very real, and I live my life, and I make my decisions, and I perform my spiritual practice with this deep seated sense that there is something outside of myself that is responding to me when I reach out to it, and I don't worry too much about the particulars, you know. So when I work with deities like Kernanos, the Horned God, or with the Morrigan, you know, the goddess of sovereignty and battle in the land. I don't worry a lot about whether they are, you know, real or literal or whether they are, you know, like I said before, archetypes or metaphors. For me, that that's just not a really satisfying argument to have. You know, are they real or not real? And I've been in way too many environments in which people kind of got hung up on that argument. They were unable to really, you know, move any deeper than that. And so... I work on this assumption, not an assumption exactly, but this, um, I work on this instinct that they are real and that they're out there and that they're responding to me. But if someone told me tomorrow, like, hey, here's definitive scientific proof that there's no such thing as God and there's no such thing as spirit, honestly, like, I don't think that would phase me as much as it might phase other people because I get so much out of the spiritual practice no matter what's at the other end of it. We're, we're 
think we're past an hour. Yeah, we're past an hour. So I feel like I really should be letting you go because I, I, I don't want to sure, be sure. greedy with your time. Um, but I really appreciate sure. um, the time you've taken. Also, just the very thoughtful answers you've given to these questions. But before we wrap things up completely, if there was one little piece of advice or like take home point that you would want to leave the people listening to this with, what would that be? So I hear a lot of people saying that they're no good with plants, you know, mm. so, oh, like I have a, you know, like a brown thumb or I just, I, I kill every plant that I get, you know, oh, I kill succulents, I kill air plants, I kill everything. So a lot of people give up pretty easily when they seek to, you know, to care for another living thing. And so my one piece of advice would be to, if you're interested in green witchcraft and you want to get started, the first thing you can do is go to a nursery and ask the people there, you know, ask the staff there, what is the easiest plant you have to take care of? Mm. And how do I take care of it? You know, so, mm. you know, like plants, like they have, they, they have different needs for light, for moisture, both in the air and in the soil. Some plants are more finicky than others, you know, but I, I guarantee that no matter where you're living and what your living conditions are, like there, there's one plant out there that you can, that you can take care of and that will thrive under your care. Really, the trick is just getting to know them and finding out what that plant needs and how you can provide it. Mm, that's a really, so, that's really lovely way of going about it because I feel like a lot of people they're like, I want the witchiest plant I can think of, you know, <laughs> right. and like from personal yeah, experience, like for me, it was pothoses and nasturtiums uh, mm. that really got me started on gardening. Those are for for me, like in my particular situation, like in the the apartment that I was in at the time, those were the easiest plants to grow for me. Maybe different for other people, but those are the easiest ones for me. And it's so rewarding when you know you look at your plant and you see that that tiny little lump on it has now developed into a leaf, and you think, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> like the plant is growing. So it's it's a really rewarding feeling, and it can be the start of something something much bigger. That's wonderful. So if people want to learn more about you and about the work you're doing where should they go what should they do uh sure well let's see i guess the easiest place to start would be my website it's uh tarotbyasa.com or my instagram it's the red tail witch those are my kind of the, the two places online where i'm the, i'm the most active marvelous thank you so much for being on i really i really enjoyed this chat yeah thank you so much for having me and yeah I'm, I'm so honored to be on Thank you so much to Asa West. I will put links to where you can find out more about her and get the book in the show notes. This has been Witch Hassle. Thank you so much for for joining us today. If you like the show and you want to support it and you want some bonus Witch Hassle content, pop over to patreon.com slash witch hassle. The most recent addition to the library there of bonus bits and bobs was me diving deeper into the legend of the Tittymun and looking at some other similar case studies as sort of a, a little jumping off point for my interview with Pheasant, right? So, you know, that sounds like a thing you might you might want to check out. Head on over to patreon.com slash richhassle. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Good luck with the work ahead.